So um, tonight we want to continue the uh, contemplation that we've been doing for, I don't know, at least six weeks now, maybe a little longer, something around six weeks, which is um, the foundations of mindfulness. And and, uh, last week we did the second week on the second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of Vedna, or the feeling tone of experience. And the feeling by that, this is not emotions in the way we think about emotions. Uh, Buddha was pointing to a specific quality of of any experience, a physical experience, an emotional experience, a mental experience, a spiritual experience, that they all have a quality to them, and the quality is that it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but somewhere in between, which for, for brevity's sake we generally call neutral. And so we've been looking at that after we looked we look for a number of weeks at mindfulness of the body and just talking about mindfulness in general. And we're going to continue to look at the foundations of mindfulness. And tonight we want to continue with the third foundation of mindfulness. But before I go directly into that, I would like to read something to you. I can't remember, I put this together, but... But the, the uh, idea was from um, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Ajahn Tanisaro, uh, who said something like frames of reference or the foundations of mindfulness, which he, he refers to as the four frames of reference, um, are the body in and of itself. Feelings or Vedana in and of themselves. The mind in and of itself and dharmas, or what's sometimes translated as mental qualities, in and of themselves. And the important piece I'm, I wanted to I wanted uh, to get heard tonight is the in and of itself import. You know, what's it like to be uh, mindful of the body in and of itself, or mindful of the vedana, the feeling tone, in and of itself, or mindful of the mind in and of itself. And then this is from Tanisara Bhikkhu who said, to take the body as a frame of reference in this way means one views it not in terms of its function in the world, for then the world would become the frame of reference, but simply on its own terms and is at it, as it is directly experienced. And that's, an, that's the important point in terms of this in and of itself-ness. The in and of itself-ness of our, whether it's our body or the feeling tone or emotions or thoughts or mind or mental objects or dharmas or the different qualities we'll be looking at when we go into the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But to really be funny, the word that comes to mind that it's probably not a great dharma word is but I'm going to use it anyway, is to be really ruthless with your mindfulness. But, but, or, or really um, dedicated to your mindfulness because our usual way of relating to body and to heart and to mind is based on a variety of other values, other trainings, 
not particularly mindfulness. You know, we are all concerned about the body. The most important thing for most people is, is it healthy and how does it look? Right. Not what's the direct experience of that, and can I pay attention to that? Can I become be sensitive to it? And it's really the same with most experiences. We have a lot of values we put on our thoughts, on our feelings, on our likes, on our dislikes, on our body, on, our, on what we hear, on what we see. Instead of starting to see that there's a more fundamental level that we can start to pay attention to, that the Buddha pointed at, that he called mindfulness, that he said was liberating or was freeing. So tonight we'll start to look, and we'll look for, I'm sure, a few weeks on uh, the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of mind. So here's a question for you. When I said, okay, be mindful of your mind tonight, how many people didn't know what I meant? You can raise your hand. It's okay if you're the only one. No, you're not. <laughs> no, no, really, raise your hand. How many people? Because it's not something we generally pay attention to. We pay attention to our mind as if we're upset, then we pay attention to what it's saying. Or if we really like something, we might pay attention, oh, I'm going to get this, or I want this. We might pay attention, but we don't pay attention to the mind itself. So how many people, when you pay attention to the mind, what did you pay attention to? Let me hear a little bit. Whether it was talking or not. Whether it was talking or not. So some people's minds talk to them. <laughs> true, true. There's many people's minds talk to it. What else? The type of thoughts. Pardon? The type of thoughts. The, 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 the different flavor of what it's saying to you. Okay, the type of thoughts. The images. That's another way the mind talks about <laughs> using images. Great. Process. One thought to the next, how they connect. So the process, one thought to another, so the continuity of thought and how that, that happens. The general attitude or relationship to the experience. The general attitude or relationship to the experience. Give me an example. What is the mood? What is the mood of your mind? Okay. The energy, the energy of the mind. The energy of the mind. And how did you pay attention to the energy of the mind? Your energy was sinking. Well, was that physical or mental? It was more mental. It was more mental. Great. Good. Good to see that. It could be either. Yeah. Okay. The quality of the attention. The quality of the attention I accept that we put on all the things in the mind. So the quality of the attention. And what did you see about that quality? It was fuzzy and slow. Fuzzy and slow. Okay. Good. That that's fine. The patterns of thought, so they can be familiar or unfamiliar. Okay? Or, or uh, sitting by waiting to see what's going to come up, show up next. Where were you sitting? <laughs> no, 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 really, I'm, I'm asking, so you're sitting. 
where where is your where you located when you're sitting waiting. So in other words, the moment when I'm really listening to my breathing, right, and really noticing, you know, my in breath, out breath, and then all of a sudden here comes something, I get taken away with it and you know come back. Right. And I sit there and wait. Oh, what next can happen? Of course, it's more of the same. But so wait. See what's going to be next. So being mindful of your breath, but then also part of your mind is wondering. Or wait, well, something just comes along and flows in, and you can't notice it. Something flows into your mind and you're noticing. Okay. Okay. Quality of my being spacious or constricted. So quality of your mind being spacious or constricted. Or my relationship to my mind. Your relationship to your mind could be spacious or constrictive. Okay, well, it's interesting to hear. I've never done this before. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Not in this like way. Like a jumpy, reactive thought. Jumpy, reactive. And then, oops, and pops to that, and it's just like playing a pinball game. Mm-hmm. So, so the jumpiness um, activates a whole movement of thought. Okay, great. Stickiness of the thought itself, and how much one attaches to it. Stickiness of thought, how much one attaches and how much you attach to it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm a thought slide, I hook up with all the motion. Does that seem to be the thought slide? Okay. I'm sure we could use harsher terms for that, but okay. No, it's really, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the, like the rules and regulations for how the mind prescribes how life should be lived and then the self-judgment that might occur. So you looked at the content and then the judgment that occurs around the content. Uh-huh. Okay, great. So this is one more. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it's a little bit different. I was going to say it because I don't know if I was committing it wrong. You don't know what? <laughs> I can't, you... You're doing it wrong. Do, So you're seeing the relationship between body and mind. That the thoughts happen and then there was, uh, they had an impact on your physicality or your energy or things like that. Okay, great. Okay, that's good. That's enough for the moment. We can, we'll see if we want more. So I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit about mind in general and the different ways it's understood in Buddhism, and then we'll look very specifically at the foundation, the third foundation, and how that's related to it. Um, you know, because generally, conventionally, we relate to the mind in terms of mental processes. Everybody got that, right? Like we think about stuff, and we wonder, or we figure out stuff, and we're, we have our, uh, a certain amount of functioning is based on being logical, or rational, or analytic, or practical or pragmatic and uh, our intelligence is an important part of our mind uh, our creativity is part of our mind our imagination I saw a really interesting movie last night that uh, I thought was made by uh, some really creative minds it was called let me see if I can remember uh, 
the wild wild creatures of the creatures of the southern wild beasts of the southern wild and it was a fascinating movie because it wasn't made like a usual movie it didn't have the usual kind of plot it had some of that but it was much more phantasmagorical dreamlike more like the mind that's not really bound into the total fixed reality. And you, you can check it out, see what you think. We really, I was quite moved by the movie, actually. But, um, but it was really interesting to see its impact on the mind and how much uh, even the movie is, has been defined by our rationality of mind, by our analytic and pragmatic and practical nature of mind. And it's it's normal, our mind, you know, how we think about mind conventionally, right? Because, you know, all these things include being able to plan and think and discuss and commentate and remember and and function. We have a discursive mind, a mind that uh, covers a wide range of subjects. And then we have in uh, Buddhism, there's another kind of mind that's described, that you've all seen, but you may not recognize exactly. Here, I'll give you an example. So you're sitting, right? You're sitting here. Sunday night, okay, I'm going to go sit. Great, I'll have a great sit. Oh, when is he going to we ring the bell? How can he take me so long? Well, he doesn't have a clock today. And I hope he to his watch. I remember that time two years ago, I went and sat at Zen Center, and they were like 40 minutes late, and I was so pissed. I didn't, I didn't know what to do, because everybody just sat there. I just hated it. So, I wonder what, if the ice cream store will still be open. <laughs> Buddhism, it's thought that there's 
definitely more possible what's called big mind. And so the two, two minds are contract, contracted, small mind and big mind. I'm going to find a nice quote. And they're actually, this is, this is a really brings it all together kind of quote anyways. But, but to, to begin to see small mind is important because it's not the end of mind. It's not the end of the story. And it starts to let us pay attention to the mind itself. Because it's part of, small mind is part of mind. Here, this is from Suzuki Roshi. He says that everything is included in your mind is the essence of mind. Okay? I'm going to say it again. That everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. To experience this is to have a religious feeling. Even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It is just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of water. To speak of waves apart from water, or water apart from waves, is delusion. Water and waves are one. Big mind and small mind are one. When you understand your mind in this way, you have some security in your feeling. As your mind does not expect anything from outside, it is always filled. A mind with waves in it is not a disturbed mind, but actually an amplified one. Whatever you experience is an expression of big mind. And then he goes out, I'll say a little more. The activity of big mind is to amplify itself through various experiences. In one sense, our experiences coming one by one are always fresh and new, but in another sense, they are nothing but a continuous or repeated unfolding of one big mind. So there's a little bit, you know, looking, or the beginning to see, because we often have a lot, how many people here have some judgments about their mind? Right, about their thinking or their thoughts or their emotions. Remember, in Buddhism, emotions are part of mind. Right? So that's very common. So one of the nice things about starting to get a bigger picture of mind, small mind that is, or big mind that includes small mind, is to start to, um, start to have a more objective view of the big picture which then brings a, a simplicity or a kindness that Suzuki Roshi is pointing at about our minds. <clears throat> and of course, it's described in different ways. You know, it's described dualistically. Spiritually, they say the mind is a terrible master and a wonderful servant. Terrible master, but a wonderful servant. Well, you have Ryokan, who was one of my great mm, loves, the Buddhist teachers, poets, who said, the Buddha is your mind. Right? Let's, maybe I should just leave it there and we should all go home now. <laughs> <laughs> the Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. 
The Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? So this is this is how important the mind is considered in Buddhism. It's to start to look, start to see, oh, what are we taking to be reality? What are we taking to be the truth of who and what we are? And are we able to be aware of or mindful of what we call mind? And it's, it, it usually takes a while. So don't be, don't be, don't expect to get it on your first meditation or your first few years even. It's a developmental capacity. It keeps growing and one keeps discovering how um, identified we are with our mind. So I'll, I'll give a personal example, right? Most of you know I had a big accident last year. Bicycle accident, big head hitting the ground. Not not a good thing to do, even with a helmet on. Um, you know what they call the mild traumatic brain injury. Um, but it really, uh, you know, I lost my mind in the usual way. I knew my mind. I didn't have that mind. You know, I had some mind, but. It wasn't the, what I was familiar with, or what I identified as myself, or what I knew my mind to be, or what I knew my mind to be capable of. So, okay, what happens then? You know, you just cash it in. What are you going to? That's not a good way to say it. <laughs> Given my name is Eugene Cash, <laughs> um, but but it's really you know for many people, and I saw this when I was taking a recovery class because um, they they got that I knew how to pay attention to my mind. Most people don't know how to do that. And so now they've lost something that they don't quite know how to attend to or they don't see is, the, is not the totality of the picture of who and what we are. It's an important part, important, very important. So, um, so in Buddhism, it's recognized the mind has these different potentialities—small mind or big mind—or as it's talked about in the Theravada, which is really uh, the tradition that we teach out of here. Um, uh, one of the quotes from the Buddha: "Luminous is this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining." But it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, so they so they do not cultivate this mind. Okay, I'll say that again. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, so they do not cultivate this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, truly understands. So for them, there is cultivation or mindfulness, attention, attentiveness of this mind. So it's important to start to pay attention at big mind and small mind. 
or mind that's been structured, formed, trained in a certain way, you know, a lot of good ways, educated or refined or taught to be, you know, intelligent in a certain way or creative in certain ways or have certain experiences. That's all fine. But it's not the end of the story about what is possible for mind. Because we tend to identify with a certain trained mind that's familiar to us. And so it's hard to begin to see the what's pointed at and talked about as big mind or luminous mind or liberated mind or free mind. And so you, it's important to look and look without judgment as how do we relate to our mind. And remember, mind-heart, I could really chip down the word in Pali and I believe Sanskrit, the same word. It's the same word for heart and mind. Heart and mind, mind, thinking, feeling, emotions, all that stuff, it's the same terrain from this perspective. And we have lots of different feelings, as I said, about our minds. Some of us think, oh, our minds aren't intelligent enough, or some of us think, oh, our minds are too schizoid, or too, you know, dry, or too heavy, or too something. Anybody ever have any of that, or is that just me? Okay, few people. And, and we have a tremendous idealization, at least culturally in the West in general, uh, uh, of the rational mind, like everybody, and then psycho- psych- psychologically uh, um, relevant cultures, like cultures that find psychology very important, which Western culture generally does, it's another way rationality is considered important. Um, this is from Einstein, Einstein, who said the intuitive mind is a wonderful gift. The rational mind is a faithful servant. It's odd in the West how we have come to honor the servant and ignore the gift. So, the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind. <coughs> start to pay attention, as some people were talking about, at the state of mind, or the state of mind and heart. And especially at what colors it. In other words, what flavors it, what impacts it. Because you can be walking around, you just, you're not even thinking. You just, you have a mind, it's there, and, so forth. and all of a sudden somebody steps on your car, or cuts you off when driving. And all of a sudden you have a different mind, how the mind is angry and furious and telling stories about accidents or what, how people should learn how to walk so they don't step on your foot and things like that. Or somebody does something really nice and you think, wow, I just love people, aren't people beautiful? And like, all the people are just wonderful. I can tell that doesn't happen so often. <laughs> but it does happen sometimes, right? So we're mindful of the state and of the uh, uh, quality of mind. Somebody says spacious mind or open mind or contracted mind or closed mind or relaxed mind or tight mind. 
can happen. You see with the heart. Heart can be open or closed or relaxed or tight or or very kind or very angry. Um, can be colored by grief or anger or wanting or some and, and here's the key piece. Why we want to start to see the mind heart and see what colors it is because we identify with the coloring. We think, oh, this is me now. I'm an angry person now. I'm a sad person now. I'm a pissed off person now. I'm a depressed person now. Oh, I'm a nice person now. Oh, I'm a happy person now. Oh, I'm a wonderful person now. Oh, I'm a joyful person now. And we give value to these different flavors of experience that come with the heart-mind experience. And I want to be careful here, because Buddhism isn't saying, oh, you shouldn't have those experiences, or you have to get rid of those. It's not at all, nothing like that. It's saying, be mindful of what's happening in the service of freedom from any experience doesn't mean the experience ends. It means we're not entranced by it. We're not shaped by it or formed by it or conditioned by it or defined by it. It's not the only thing in reality that lets us know who and what we are. And in, in the Buddhist teaching, there's three overarching states of mind or atmospheres of mind that the Buddha points to. The first Raga, dosa, and moha. And of course you all know what those are. <laughs> I'll give you a little definition now in case you don't. The first one is really um, a four quick I'll read you. This is not my favorite interpretation, but it's sure good enough. Here's from the text. This is a Thich Hans interpretation, which is very liberal. And it's, it's good that way, but it's, I always like to read the more uh, uh, traditional uh, ones, which are not quite as liberal, but you see how to work with them. So how does a practitioner remain established or mindful of the observation of mind in mind? When one's mind is desiring, the practitioner is aware my mind is desiring. When one's mind is not desiring, one is aware my mind is not desiring. When one mind is angry, or he has here hating some, something, one is aware my mind is hating. When one's mind is not hating, one is aware my mind is not hating. When one's mind is in a state of ignorance and delusion, one is aware my mind is in a state of delusion. When, when one's mind is not in a state of ignorance, one is aware my mind is not in a state of ignorance or delusion. And then there's, there's some more, maybe we'll get to them, but then there, you know, there's tense mind and there's distracted mind and, uh, what else does he have here? He has a wide mind and narrow mind and things like that, composed mind and then uh, free and unfree, really liberated and unliberated. And that's the whole instruction for the third foundation of mindfulness. I basically just gave it to you, cutting out a few of the sentences again, repeating it, which is to be aware of the state of mind, 
the qualities that we want to pay attention to, if there's uh, greed or hatred or ignorance, or the opposite of that, the opposite of greed or the opposite of hatred or the opposite of, of um, delusion. Um, and so we want to, you want to start to recognize the atmosphere. It's like if you would go somewhere and you couldn't recognize the atmosphere, you wouldn't know what to breathe or, or what to wear or how to breathe or what was needed exactly. So what the Buddha is saying is you can start to pay attention to your mind. And let me just see, how many people feel like, oh, this is not for me? Let me just see if there's any of that. And just be honest, you know, you're great. Good. How come it's not for you? Can, can you say, does it just sound too esoteric or it's just boring? Or? I, I can't hear you. Too complicated. Yeah, well, you're, you're more complicated than you want to be, that's for sure. And I mean that sincerely, we are. We're complicated beings in that way. And we would like something quicker, easier, simpler. And if I had it, I would give it to you. Believe me, I'm, I'm with you on that. But it's, once you start to recognize the mind, it gets really interesting to see, oh, oh, that's my mind. That's not me. That's a quality of my experiences here. You want to? Go ahead. One kind of like difficult or problem is it seems that if you're like an exaggerator or a depressor, you're very aware. You're just like, okay, I'm not feeling good. This is, I want this, you know, this is unpleasant. Yeah. And then when you're in a, in a better mood or you're in a good mood, you're kind of caught up in the good mood. And so you're not really that. So, so really, you don't really, you're not really paying that much attention. So you just say, hey, this is, this is fine. Okay, let me just repeat. So what you're saying is that it's um, easier to see when you're in a bad mood or a difficult mood because you want to get rid of it. And when you're in a good mood, it's like, why bother paying attention to it? Yeah, right? That's exactly true. Why do that? Because neither is free. And there's something being pointed at that may be more important than whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Remember the second foundation about pleasant and unpleasant. So, and it's true. It takes, and, and it's not easy. It, it takes some practice. It's like doing anything uh, with some skill that we don't know how to do. Play the piano, or you know, garden, or cook. It takes practice, and then you can cook something really good after a while. But you can't do it at first. You have to. You have to learn. And so, you know, if you don't want to learn, then you just buy, go to McDonald's, and you get whatever you get. But, but if you want to learn, then you have the opportunity to um, uh, create your own food. And meditation is a little like that. It's a little bit like, oh, it's going to create, you learn how to cook something, so you, you get something more than what you knew was possible. So yeah, but good, and totally, believe me, I, you three weren't the only three who were like, do we have to keep talking about this? Because <laughs> it's not something we generally pay attention to. It's much easier to be mindful of the body. 
right? The body, oh yeah, pay attention, the body hurts, it feels good, it's hot or it's cold or it's painful or it's pleasurable. The mind itself, what, what is that? Where is that? How do you pay attention to it? And so I'm positing it so you start to look for your own mind and how to be mindful of it. And we'll, again, we're going to keep going with it for a while. <laughs> so, so, as I said, so the three basic uh, overarching qualities of mind the Buddha suggests to look for first are really greed or desire or lust or wanting, that's one, or the uh, hatred, anger, ill will, aversion, that's two, and then the third is delusion or ignorance or confusion or bewilderment. And then none of them means, he is not saying, oh, you have to get rid of me. That's a very important point. He's saying, pay attention, be mindful of your mind and see what happens as you bring the light of awareness to this flavor of human experience. And then he's also, and he does this more um, in a very Buddhist way, he does this more implicitly rather than explicitly. He's pointing at something. Because you've all had experiences of greed or anger or delusion. But you've also had experiences of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Everybody here has had that experience in a moment-to-moment way. And so it means you start to recognize non-greed, which generally is one of the ways generosity manifests. It's not a greedy thing. It's not a, it's not a keep it, keep it here thing. It's not a desire thing. It's really a giving. You know, or the um, non-hatred is love, compassion. These are expressions of an in, innate qualities of mind. And um, the non-delusion is wisdom and understanding. And these are totally right from the Buddhist text. That's how it's put. And it's put, it's taught that this is innate. When we start to recognize the ways the mind has gotten conditioned and attached to certain states of mind that we call greed, hatred, and delusion. <clears throat> so what becomes important is recognizing our experience and being mindful of it, seeing what's what. And so you're not trying to become the perfect person. You're trying to awaken to the experience that's here and see what happens as that awakeness begins to permeate human experience. <clears throat> and it's the same truth also when the instructions go further when when they're talking and the more traditionally they talk about um, being mindful of uh, what are called higher states of mind which are a great mind, an unsurpassable mind, a concentrated mind, and a liberated mind. And really the phrases, the terms that I know. And you want to be mindful of them and the absence of them. So you want to be mindful of a narrow mind or a surpassable mind or an unconcentrated mind or an unliberated mind and to really start to see the difference 
And this is a capacity that all of us have. It usually takes a little while to begin to recognize these qualities of mind. Often uh, it's a little easier on a longer retreat when you start to get settled and you start to see, um, or no, you can, you can see it. Uh, sometimes the Brahma Vihara is a really great place to see it and practicing loving kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity. And you see, you know, you have a very narrow idea about who, who that's for. That's just for me. And then some point on a retreat or in practice, you start to feel this loving kindness for all beings. And it's an interesting perception of reality because it's not just an idea, it's an attitude that arises. And you say, oh, this is a great mind. This is a mind that's not narrow. Or, or a mind that is opened by something, like a little bit like the movie I saw last night, was really, that opened the mind. That opened a bigger mind than the usual, conventional, ordinary, or familiar way we use our minds. At least I thought it did. <coughs> or is surpassable or unsurpassable. Again, it has more to do with um, certain states of samadhi, <clears throat> and beginning because on retreat if you go on a serious retreat you go for a while a week or a couple weeks or a month the samadhi builds samadhi often translated as concentration and you start to have states of, of mind that come with concentration and you can get you know concentrated this much or this much or bigger or narrower whatever it might be, and you start to recognize that it's a, it's, a, it's a good state of consciousness, but there's more. Or you start to recognize there's a totality to that at some point. It's unsurpassable, etc., etc. We don't have to go into this too much. So, what, what, what the four foundations of mindfulness do is they start us off at the body. At the, you know, one of the most fundamental, everyday, ordinary places to pay attention. Say, be mindful of your physical experience, the immediate experience, not how does it look or, you know, what can it do, not that, but what's the experience of being a living body, breathing body here, alive. And then it starts to expand the field of mindfulness and brings in this very fundamental quality of experience that it calls Vedana, which is the tone that comes with any experience, and it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Any experience, every experience has that. And then there's, and then it starts to expand more. It says, okay, now let's look at the heart mind, at this this part of us that we're so identified with. Right? How we think, what we think, how we feel, what we feel. Right? That's who we are, we think. And Buddha said, well, let's see. He doesn't say, no, that's not who you are. Get rid of that or, you know, throw that away. No, he says, no, be mindful of it. And so, we start to turn our attention in a new way to the totality of human experience. <coughs> So we're training the mind now in a new way, in a way that's often unfamiliar to us. 
And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful opportunity. A beautiful opportunity to start to pay attention to something that's quite magical, quite mysterious, human life. And it's sitting in your seat. And the whole, the whole Dharma is sitting in your seat, nowhere else. That's, of course, the best thing I always say. It's right here, right here, right with you, even with your, you know, however you feel about the talk, I don't like this, who cares about the mind, or I like this, I want more about the mind, or wow, where did he find that stuff about the mind, or whatever. Just notice your experience, because it's that experience we're pointing at right now which has a physical component, an energetic component, an emotional component, a mental component, and a spiritual or contemplative component. Maybe even other components, I'm not saying. But we want to start to pay attention or learn how to pay attention at the totality of the human experience that we are because this, this form, this we are, is is the vehicle for awakening. This is from the Dalai Lama. Um, he said, training of mind involves not just one single method, but many methods. It's like building a huge airplane. It takes so many pieces that all have to fit together to make it work. In the same way, the trans- transformation of our minds takes time. And so he said, Start to pay attention. Start to see what's here. I have all these great quotes. I'll be reading them over the next few weeks, so you're going to get it. But this is this is from uh, uh, Zen, Zen Master Dogen. He said, I came to realize that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. Your mind is amazing, even though it can be very small sometimes. <laughs> uh, I left for the next few weeks. And I'm going to talk more specifically in the next few weeks a little about being mindful of emotions and thoughts about those qualities of mind and how to pay attention them. But, um, let's see, I'm looking for, my mind is
So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dharma. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize the Dharma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dharma. Once the mind is known, then Dharma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about mind is the attainment of Nibbana or Nirvana. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Let's sit for a minute before we end.